Congregation, so far by way of our Heidelberg Catechism, we have focused on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the identity of the Savior. And we have done so by considering His names, Jesus, Christ, Lord, and that He is the only begotten Son of the Father. And now from Lord's Day 14 to Lord's Day 19, we're going to focus how He, this Christ, how He accomplished redemption. And so on Lord's Days 14 through 16, we will focus on what we call the steps of His humiliation. And then Lord's Days 17 through 19, we will focus on the steps of His exaltation. So what does that mean, boys and girls? Well, if I had a blackboard, I would show you on, my, on the blackboard that what Christ literally did from the moment he was born, step by step, he descended into the very depth of our fall, totally identifying himself with fallen sinners. It began with his humble birth. He was conceived and born under the most shameful circumstances. Then he lived his life having to deal with the consequences of sin. Then he suffered, and he died. He was buried, following the pattern of the life of every sinner. We are born as sinners, we live as sinners, we suffer as sinners, we die because we're sinners, we are buried, and if we die without salvation, we will descend into hell. And so to be the Savior of sinners... Christ identified himself fully with fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And so in the step of his humiliation, step by step by step, he descended into the depths of our fall. And then, when he accomplished his work, then we see how step by step he rises and returns into the very presence of God. He arises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. And he will come in glory. And so, as the Redeemer, as the Savior of his people, not only did he descend into the depth of our fall, but he also brings us out of that and step by step restores us into the very favor and presence of God. So parents, I would encourage you to take a pad of paper and to outline this for your children. Take a pad of paper and put down these five steps and mark what these are. His birth, his suffering, his uh, dying, his burial, his descent into hell. The steps of his humiliation. And then also the steps of his exaltation. And so when we consider the, his, the steps of his humiliation and the steps of his exaltation, we get a complete picture of what Christ came to accomplish. He came to save fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And he came to restore fallen sons and daughters of Adam, to restore us again into the very favor and presence of God.
So last week, we considered the first step of his humiliation. When we spoke about the incarnation, that he assumed the human nature. And as I explained to you, the incarnation itself, the union of God and man in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in itself was not humiliating, but the very fact that he was conceived in the womb of a sinner, and that he was born under exceedingly shameful circumstances, that was indeed deeply humiliating. And so now on Lord's Day 15, we will proceed to consider the next step of his humiliation, namely his suffering. So turn with me to Lord's Day 15 of the Catechism, Lord's Day 15, which really unpacks for us what we have read in Isaiah 53, unpacks for us, especially these words, but he was wounded for our transgressions. But he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So we read in question 37, what dost thou understand by the words he suffered? The answer is that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of of all mankind, that so, by his passion, that means by his suffering, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Question 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? The answer is that he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Question 39. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? And the answer is yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. For the death of the cross was accursed of God. And so the three points, of course, come from the three questions and answers. Faith in the suffering Son of God. Remember, we are expounding the Apostles' Creed, where we say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. So faith in the suffering Son of God, who suffers, who suffered to accomplish a complete redemption. His suffering yielded a complete redemption. Secondly, his suffering has satisfied the justice of God. And thirdly, his suffering has silenced the curse of the law. His suffering has yielded a complete redemption, has satisfied the justice of God, and has silenced the curse of the law. That he, all the time that he lived on earth, 
but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. A congregation, there was never a time in history where the manifestation of God's wrath was on such full display as on Calvary's hill. There, God poured out His wrath upon His only begotten Son. And what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is the response of God's holy being to sin. Sin provokes Him to wrath. Sin is so exceedingly offensive to Him. The congregation... There's nothing worse in this world than to have the wrath of God upon us. And yet God's Word is very clear. That as long as we live in sin, as long as we live as unrepentant sinners, we are under that wrath. Because John the Baptist, in his final statement of his ministry, said, He that believeth on the Son has life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's a present reality. That's why it is so serious to be unconverted. It's so serious not to be reconciled with God. It is so serious to be under that wrath. That wrath which God still restrains. But that wrath which will once be poured out fully. And yet, by way of the cross, God has given us a clear display of how sin provokes Him. That He poured out His wrath upon His only begotten Son. There's a very unique statement here in the Catechism. It says here, the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. Now, we have to make sure we don't misread that. Some people have misread that as if the Catechism teaches universal atonement. Nothing is further from the truth. That's not what it says here. It does not say that Christ endured the wrath of God for all sinners. It says here, he endured the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. What that simply means, congregation, that God's wrath is not only provoked by the sins of his people, but God's wrath is provoked by the sins of all of humanity. That wrath is undivided. It's the sin and the wickedness of the ungodly that provokes a holy God to infinite wrath. And all of that wrath was poured out upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, his suffering already began. The moment he was born, he was only very young, when his parents had to flee to Egypt. And of course, when he was eight days old, he was circumcised as if he were a sinful boy. And so his first blood was shed already at that moment. And then he suffered his whole lifetime. He suffered in many different ways. But the worst of it all was that he 
the sinless Son of God had to dwell in a sinful world. Boys and girls, what if you were told by your parents that tonight you would have to sleep in a hog barn? That you would have to spend the night with the pigs? You would recoil from such an idea. Recoil from the fact that you would have to spend the night in that environment. But it's nothing compared with what Christ endured when he walked here upon this earth. For him, the sinless one, the holy one of Israel, to walk in a sinful world. To be surrounded by sinners. And because he was all-knowing, to know exactly what those sinners were all about. Oh, how offensive it was. How he suffered from the enmity of the scribes and Pharisees. How he suffered from the rejection of so many of the people of Israel. But most of all, especially at the end of his life, he suffered when he sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. And why? Why did he have to endure that wrath in its full extent? Because congregation, the only way that you and I who are worthy of that wrath, the only way we could be delivered from that wrath is by him enduring that wrath to the fullest. So that by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. Everlasting damnation. That's our future. That's what we deserve as sinners, as transgressors. Everlasting damnation. How that should sink into our soul. What a statement that is. To be everlastingly damned, to be everlastingly cast out of God's presence, to everlastingly be subject to the wrath of God, and to know that that damnation will never, never end. Yet, congregation, that's the future of every unrepentant sinner. That's why it is such a serious thing not to be reconciled with God. And if you are here tonight, and if you know that that's true for you, you need to realize that you're living on the edge of hell itself, that you are only one breath away from being cast into everlasting damnation, where God's wrath will burn forever against those who have rejected His only begotten Son, Everlasting damnation. That's why the cross is so important in so many different ways. Because congregation, the cross is God's statement how he views sin. Sin is so grievous. Sin is so offensive in his sight that in order to save sinners, to deliver us from eternal damnation, God had to subject His only begotten Son to the unspeakable suffering of Calvary's cross. 
where he suffered not only physically, that's only one part of it, his physical suffering. Far too often during the Passion season, the focus is on his physical suffering. And it was brutal what he endured. Let there be no mistake about it. But that was not the worst part of his suffering. The worst part of his suffering was during those three hours of darkness. It was then that he experienced the full reality of hell. It was then that God's wrath burned against him in an unspeakable way. Three hours of darkness. Three hours of utter silence. We have no idea what the Savior endured. And yet, he did it willingly. Yet, he did it by divine appointment. Yet, he did it because he knew in order to save those whom the Father had given him, he knew not only that he, had, that he had to endure that wrath, but that he had to quench it. Because that's what the word propitiation means. It says here, the only propitiatory sacrifice. Now, I know, boys and girls, that sounds like a, a difficult word. So let me try to explain to you what is meant by that. The best explanation, I've used it many times, is that when the fire department is called to come and put out a fire. And when they succeed in putting out that fire, they will have propitiated that fire. They will have quenched it. And so it is with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is like a burning fire that burns against sinners. And what Christ accomplished... But he accomplished by his sacrifice, by his substitutionary sacrifice, he accomplished that God was propitiated, God was satisfied with his sacrifice on behalf of an innumerable multitude of sinners. By his sacrifice, by his suffering, he quenched the wrath of God. Oh, Jesus knew that was coming. That's why he agonized so in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why he sweat drops of blood. Oh, that wrath of God was beginning to descend upon him. It was beginning to burn in his holy soul. And it had such a profound impact on his physical body that his capillaries burst and he sweat great drops of blood. Oh, he felt, he felt what was coming. He, as it were, looked into an open hell. He knew that he would have to endure the wrath of God. And yet he did it willingly. He said, Lord, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thy will be done. Oh, dear believer, your Savior knew that in order to save you, he would have to go to hell in your place. He knew that in order to save you, he had to endure the wrath of God in your place. He knew that he had to descend in hell in order to deliver you, a hell-worthy sinner. That's what we are. That's how serious sin is. It's not a nice expression, but that's what we are. We are hell-worthy sinners. That's why Jesus, to save hell-worthy sinners had to endure the full reality of hell on the cross. So that by his passion and by his suffering 
as the only propitiatory sacrifice, as the only sacrifice that could quench the wrath of God, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation. That's the negative part. And then the positive part. And obtain for us, for us, sinners, the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. What an amazing statement. The favor of God. The exact opposite of the wrath of God. But the Father is so well pleased with that sacrifice. So satisfied with what His Son has done. That He can now freely bestow His favor on hell-worthy sons and daughters of Adam. Oh, to, to be a recipient of the favor of God. And yet, dear believer, dear child of God, that's your privilege. Your privilege is that God is favorably disposed towards you and always will be. Why? Because your Savior accomplished that for you by suffering in your place to redeem you, to make you the recipient of the favor of God, of righteousness, and eternal life. Righteousness. What does that mean here? Righteousness means simply this. That we, that the believer can be assured that because of that sacrifice, Christ has laid the foundation for you to have a right relationship with God. A, a, a relationship that is agreeable to His divine being. That's what Christ has accomplished. And so if by the grace of God, we have put our trust in that Christ. If by the grace of God, we have believed on Him and continue to do so. God makes us a partaker of that righteousness which your Savior has merited. So that through Him, God can now freely embrace a sinner like we are. That because of that suffering that He endured on the cross, God can bestow upon us that flawless righteousness. To put it very simply, boys and girls, because of Christ's suffering, Christ has made everything right again. That's what that word righteousness means. That's the privilege of God's children to know that in Him I am righteous before God. And eternal life. Eternal life. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that to live forever. Yes, that's true. God's children will live forever. But it means much more than that. Eternal life. What does life mean? What was Adam and Eve's life before they fell? Why were they living souls? Two reasons. Hopefully you can remember. They were living souls because they had a personal relationship with God. And they lived in fellowship with God. That's why they were living souls. That's why life was so glorious and life was so precious. 
to have this special love relationship with their maker and to live in daily fellowship and communion with God. And that's the future for all those for whom Christ gave himself and suffered, suffered and endured the wrath of God on Calvary's cross. That's why he was forsaken. That's the awful thing about hell, to be forever separated from God, to be forever have to endure the wrath of God. And to know, dear believer, that because of this Savior, what he has done for you, that your future is a future where you will forever bask in the love of God. You will forever enjoy the favor of God. You will forever live in fellowship and communion with God. All because of what this Savior suffered in your place. So that's the wonder. That's the wonder of his suffering. That sinners who are worthy of the wrath of God become the objects of the infinite love of God. That's why we read in Revelation several times how that the Lamb is worshipped. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But why, that's the next question, why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Why was the name of that wretched individual, that utterly corrupt Roman judge, why was his name inserted into the Apostles' Creed? Listen carefully as we try to explain that. Because though Pilate was a vile man, though he was a corrupt man, a wicked man to the core, a man without principle, yet he was the lawful judge of the land at that time. That's the mystery of it all. Because as corrupt as he was, he said repeatedly that Jesus was innocent. Now, commentators disagree. Some say he said it three times. Some say he said it five times. Reverend Verena says he said it seven times. But it doesn't matter. Multiple times he affirmed his innocence. That in itself is important. Why is that important? Boys and girls, why is it so important for us to know that Jesus was innocent? That he was not guilty of anything? If that had not been true, he could not have been the savior of his people. He would have been disqualified if he had been guilty of sin. But he was innocent. That's why all the sacrifices of the Old Testament had this in common. They had to be without blemish to teach the people of Israel that God's future lamb of God that would come, he would be a lamb without blemish. Even Pilate this wicked and corrupt and vile judge had to affirm the innocence of the Lord Jesus. And yet, though he was innocent personally, yet he was the most guilty man on earth in God's sight. 
And now we have to realize that even though Pilate was a corrupt and evil judge, he still represented at that time the lawful government of Israel. And so, so above this vile and corrupt judge, above him was the judge of all the earth. And he viewed his son as the substitute, as the mediator of his people. And God viewed him as the most guilty man on earth. And so God overruled, overruled all the corruption, overruled it in such a way that even though Pilate had declared him innocent, that yet he finally condemned him to the accursed death on the cross. For so God had purposed it. At the day of Pentecost, Peter says to the people, you did it with wicked hands. But what happened was according to the determinate counsel of God, the overruling counseling of God. And so what, what is emphasized here by the fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he suffered as one who was without blemish, holy and harmless, he was innocent, and yet he was guilty. He was guilty as the substitute of his people. And so what was meant for evil, God overruled it. Overruled it ultimately for good. That's why it says here, yet he being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Because what is it the justice of God requires? The justice of God requires the punishment of the transgressor. That's how it is in our culture. We have a justice department. Why do we have a justice department? To uphold the law and to punish the breakers of the law. And this is infinitely more true of God. God's character is such that he cannot overlook a single sin. God's character is such that every sin must be paid for. That's why Jesus had to endure this wretched death on the cross. Because not only had he endure the wrath of God in order to quench it, but he also had to be subjected to the justice of God. And that justice had to be fully satisfied. And so beautifully the catechism is saying, that's what this simple phrase tells us. That by God's overruling providence, Christ was subjected to what God required of him as a judge. And as a judge, God required the full payment for all the sins of the people that he represented, an innumerable multitude. What a staggering debt. What a staggering debt it was beyond our comprehension. And yet precisely, because he suffered under Pontius Pilate, we may now know that this God's justice has been fully satisfied. Satisfied for us. 
Because look again at the answer. It says that he, being innocent and yet condemned. And what is true of us? We are condemned. But if by grace we are in Christ, though we are condemned in ourselves, God views us now as innocent in Him. Because Christ has satisfied the justice of God. That's why God can freely pardon guilty and hell-worthy sinners. That's why God's children have the glorious knowledge to know that because of this precious Christ, that they are forever freed from the severe judgment of God. In Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, Christ died for us. Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's why he begins Romans 8 with these wonderful words. There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. What a blessed truth that is. No condemnation. Oh, because he was condemned in our place. The overruling justice and providence of God rendered him guilty. And he experienced the full reality of it. He experienced the severe judgment of God upon our sins. And by doing so, he has thereby delivered us, freed us from that severe judgment. And again, by implication, that's why it is so serious when we are not in Christ. Because then we are subjected to that severe judgment. That means that that severe judgment is inescapable for us. We need to realize that what Christ endured on the cross is what sinners will endure forever and ever. Because God's justice will be satisfied. God cannot compromise himself. Every sin must be paid for. Either it has been paid for by this Christ, it has been paid for by this Savior, or we will have to pay that penalty forever and ever. And so hell is the punishment of a just God. Hell is the just judgment that God will impose upon all who reject His only begotten Son. For that is ultimately the sin of all mankind. That is the sin of all sins. And the Father loves His Son so much that the only fitting judgment for the rejection of His Son in unbelief is the everlasting experience of hell. Psalm 95, verse 11. Unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. And so if you are not in Christ, if you have not yet repented of your sin and taken refuge to Him, I have to tell you that that severe judgment of God awaits you. 
That that severe judgment of God is inescapable. That's why the Bible urges us to flee the wrath to come. Oh, we don't even begin to realize what awaits those who live and die in their sins. But the wonder is that it is to such sinners that God still offers peace and pardon. It is to such sinners that Christ is preached. It is to such sinners that it is declared even today that as guilty as we are, as defiled as we are, that if we put our trust in this Jesus who suffered and died on Calvary's cross, if we put our trust in him, the God against whom we have sinned, the God whom we have offended, the God whom we have provoked to wrath, that God will fully and freely pardon our sins. Because this is the God of whom we spoke a few weeks ago, who swears by his own name that he has no pleasure in the death of sinners. That's why he subjected his only begotten son to the accursed death on the cross. And that brings us to our final point, that his suffering silenced the curse of the law. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? What does that mean, boys and girls? So if Jesus had been stoned to death, would that have been okay? If Jesus would have been beheaded, would that have been okay? If Jesus would have died in any other way, would that have been okay? Is there a reason? Is it really important that he suffered and died on the cross? Why the cross? Because that that death penalty was really foreign to the Jewish people. And of course, it was the the Romans who were the ones who used that death penalty very, very frequently. The fact that they crucified Jesus was not an unusual thing for them. They crucified many. But why? Why did Jesus have to be crucified? And says the answer is yes. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. Because you see, there is a remarkable passage in Deuteronomy 21. Why don't you turn there with me? Deuteronomy 21, let's read verses 22 and 23. And that passage is arguably one of the most important passages in all Scripture. There we read in verse 22, chapter 21, verse 22. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death... And he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. And then we have a statement in parentheses. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. And that statement in parentheses is one of the most important statements in all of Scripture. Because that statement explains to us why Jesus was hung on a tree, why he died on a wooden cross. And the Apostle Paul and Peter both refer to this hanging on the tree. So God's curse, in other words, what would happen in Israel, someone would be stoned to death, a great criminal would be stoned to death. 
But he was such a shameful individual that after they stoned him to death, then they would hang him on a tree before they would bury him. And God's curse was pronounced upon those that would hang on a tree. And so the important connection is that his being nailed on the cross has to do with God's curse. What is God's curse? Very simply, God's curse is God's negative word. The gospel is God's positive word. But the curse of God is God's negative word. In the gospel, God pronounces his favor upon those who believe in his son. In his curse, he promises judgment to all who die in their sins. So when the curse of God rests upon a man, that means that God's judgment, God's wrath is inescapable. There is nothing worse for a human being than to be subject to the curse of God. And the Bible tells us that cursed is every man who does not do that which is written in the law. So in other words, as sinners, we are under the curse of God by nature. And as long as we are under that curse, God's judgment is inescapable. And that's why in order to be the Savior of sinners, not only did he have to quench the wrath of God, not only did he have to satisfy the justice of God, but he also had to silence the curse of God. And that's why Paul writes in Galatians 3, he writes that Christ, verse 13, he said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so what happened on the cross is that Christ subjected himself to the curse of his own law. He identified himself with that curse. He became a curse in the place of his people. Why? So that God could bless us. And so, dear believer, you are a partaker of God's blessing because your Savior endured the curse in your place. He was made a curse in your place. And that's why what Christ did by hanging on that cross he transformed that ugly symbol representing God's curse. He transformed the symbol of God's curse into a symbol of God's blessing. That's why the cross is so central to the gospel. That's why Paul says, I desire to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so we need to wrap this up. I've only scratched the surface of what's really expressed in this Lord's day. And so, dear, dear believer, what a Savior you have. What a Savior you have. A Savior who quenched God's wrath of which you were worthy, fully and completely. A Savior who in your place satisfied all the claims of God's justice a Savior who has silenced the curse of God so that because of all that He accomplished, 
You will now forever enjoy God's favor. You will forever enjoy God's presence. You will forever experience God's blessing in Christ. All because of a Savior who was wounded for your transgressions, who was bruised for your iniquities, and who endured the chastisement of your peace, who endured all those stripes so that you could be healed. O congregation, is this Christ your Savior? Do you know tonight that you are in Him? Because woe unto you if you are not. If this Christ is not your Savior, if you have not taken refuge to this Christ, then this is what awaits you. This is what awaits you, the everlasting wrath of God. The judgment of God, oh, that judgment in that final day, what will that be, especially for those who have lived under the gospel, to be judged by God and to be consigned to everlasting damnation, to endure God's curse forever. But God is still proffering peace and pardon, even today even tonight. Oh, the God against whom we have sinned is stretching forth his hands. He's saying, sinner, I have made full provision for your sin and all of its consequences in my only begotten Son. I offer him to you freely and unconditionally. And the promise of my gospel is if you believe in my Son, if you trust in him, I will be gracious to you. I will pardon all of your sins. I will embrace you in the everlasting arms of my love. Oh, that none of us will perish. Having heard of this Christ, having had this Christ offered to us freely and repeatedly, that you would realize that unless you are found in him, all that Christ endured on the cross will be your everlasting portion. The apostle says that how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And dear child of God, how indebted you are to this Savior for having saved a wretch like you. What a debt of love you owe to this Christ, who has done everything for you to secure your salvation. That's why Paul says that our calling as a Christian is to be a living sacrifice unto him who gave himself for us. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we give thee thanks for the marvelous gospel set forth even for us tonight. As we have considered what Jesus accomplished as the Savior of sinners, who suffered to secure a full redemption for hell-worthy sinners, who satisfied the claims of thy justice, who silenced the curse of the law so that hell-worthy sinners could be fully reconciled with thee and be recipients 
of the exact opposite of what we deserve, to know that those who believe in this Christ will not perish, but have eternal life. Lord, we pray for those among us who have not yet come to this Christ. Oh, that they would realize how dire and how serious their situation is, that they would yet flee the wrath to come, that they would yet seek this Christ while he is still near, while he still proffers peace and pardon. Go with us as we go homeward. Give us a blessed evening that we may reflect on what we have heard today. Go with us in this coming week. Uh, Keep us in all that we do. Be with those who will be traveling. Give them traveling mercies. Be with our young people tonight as we meet to discuss a portion of thy word. Bless also that interaction with thy word. And forgive us our sins for Christ's sake alone. Amen.